people of great wealth understood the risks that they were taking. But the despotism and tyranny had reached such a level that men's livelihood was being taken from them. Their lives were being ruined. King George and his monarchy had to be cast down as a new constitutional republic was being put in place. Something of this nature had never been seen before in the history of nations. A government formed by the people for the people. Would it stand? Could it endure? Was it worth fighting for and losing all? Indeed, it was. But time has passed and the nation has fallen into the hands of those who do not recognize the intentions and principles of the Founding Fathers. A new idea has been incorporated. Our president, today, likes to call it democracy, something that was vehemently rejected early on. Earlier, it was called progressivism and was tightly embraced by Western Europe intellectuals and soon thereafter by the American elite. Today, it's called socialism. It had been polished and reshaped, redefined, but the smell and the effects are the same as they have been since its inception. It is followed constantly by chaos, inflation, restrictions, and regulations. These are being forced upon the American people in ways that many are unaware of, while the elite eat their cake. The rich are becoming incredibly richer, and the middle class is disappearing. The poor, well, they're being forced into the arms of the state. This is Frank Goss with Vintage Broadcasting. I want to invite you to continue following us as we're discussing various topics related to the condition of our nation today. We will be considering the subject, How to Eat an Elephant, watching the progressive win the battle for the Christian hope you can fit a bit So the 60s arrive, and we need to consider what the new liberals had in mind. But one thing we need to do is look at exactly who the new liberals were. When you start considering it, you'll have to stop and realize that they're not as new as you would think. They've been in place, and they've been growing for the better part of the last 120 years. John Dewey, back in the 20s and 30s, said he was moving philosophically from absolutism into experimentalism. And thus, we have a major break with over 2,000 years of metaphysics, or fundamental biblical truth. This brings with it a tectonic shift within every aspect of thought. These men were arrogant men, and they were set to challenge all that history and all that history's God had to say. Dewey felt that if you were seeking what was right and true... You were seeking the wrong thing from the very beginning. Why? Because you already had the need of an absolute established, and thus your search would be biased before you began looking. You're looking for something and somehow uh, would be able to recognize that something when you saw it. You'd be denying the convergence of ideas, meaning there's multiple truths that all end up with the same conclusion. You're looking for an absolute in a world where there are none. You aren't looking for truth. You're looking for something that, when tried and proven, would match your preconceived ideas. So you end up surrounding yourself with particular ideas and people and things with which you agree or which agree with you. This is where the error enters in to religion and education, philosophy and politics. But not science. No, no, no. Science somehow seems to live in a world that seeks absolutes. But as we've learned with Dr. Anthony Fauci, even those facts are evolutionary and are always changing. 
it underlines Dewey's notion that there are no absolutes. With this approach, you're declaring that you and your views are absolute, and there's no allowance for change. So you want to tell somebody, I guarantee you there are no absolutes. You have to stop and say, oh, really? Absolutes in the back of your mind, according to the liberal, eventually become a perverse way of considering life. And to be honest and willing to embrace the truth, we have to be open-minded and willfully challenge any and all conventions that we've ever known. Accept the fact that there are no absolutes, and your life will be a whole lot easier. Now, does that make any sense at all? The hydrological cycle. Is that an absolute? The sun shining. Is that an absolute? So, following the lead of Mr. John Dewey, the academic community concluded in agreement with Dewey that there were no absolute answers to any questions. And Dewey set the national mind on the path to chaos, to controversy, and intellectual insanity. From his time of instituting all these insane notions, 30 years passed and we walked into the 60s. You'll be forced to realize that there can be no absolute truth because in itself that suggests there is indeed an absolute. And using this sort of logic is where people conclude that life is absolutely absurd. Society is nothing more than managed chaos. John Dewey taught that what was needed to guide men was the scientific method. It was the art of deduction, more practical and pragmatic. Scientific reasoning had to be piqued in a man in order to get him to perform intellectually. You have to ask questions, a Socratic approach. And in asking questions, you raise problems intellectually, hypotheticals. And then through a collective effort of peers, you find solution to, solutions to those hypotheticals. This is the scientific approach. And in Dewey's estimation, it's the most pragmatic way to reach solutions. Solutions that over time will indeed be subject to constant change. Dewey's desire was to move beyond the old way of solving age-old questions, and it was his suggestion that we begin to ask questions disregarding all the history that we had known. So we had to embark on an entirely new way of thinking, but to do this, he had to have certain fundamental controls within the educational complex. So he was given that control through his school in Chicago. So what works now? What is practical and pragmatic. How do you feel about this? So you begin to ask new questions and you begin to find new solutions. This means a rejection of the old absolute ideas that we've held for so long. And so we need to start turning in order to find solutions to real problems in a concrete way. This introduced a new need for greater understanding of psychology. To follow Dewey's reasoning, we needed to understand why people behave the way they do. So the new liberalism turned to a study of the behavioral sciences, which is psychology and psychiatry. Science became enamored with Sigmund Freud at this time and his method of psychoanalysis. Now keep in mind that the path is being paved and it's leading America down this road as a nation towards an administrative state. If we're going to have all this psychology and psychiatry, we need certain people who can overlook it and manage it. If we're to coexist and to work collectively, we must be able to discern and define real problems and seek to find appropriate solutions. And there's only few, a select few who can do this, who are capable of understanding and who have studied appropriately. Most of the problems that we encounter in a culture are found in people, and they're found in opinions. Things and objects do not complain. They don't get depressed. They don't protest or agitate. Things do not ask ridiculous questions or demand answers. People do. So, P 
people cause the problems. They form unions, they demand change, they create new ideas, they want, and they're never satisfied. How do you govern 300 million people? Well, the classical liberal views, such as were voiced by Edmund Burke and John Locke and Blackstone, were far too rigid, and they reflected a negative view of humanity. Hence, that certain laws were established to restrict and to control society. Force was needed to exercise these laws. And it was all part of the antiquated system that had to be abolished. Now, if we could understand men in a great way, if we could understand the why behind men's actions, then we could better control society and create a means of control that would soften the standards of the law and ease restrictions. A man simply needs an open avenue to express himself freely without any fear of repercussion. We should not construct moral obstacles that would cause him to feel guilt and shame. This is why he feels restricted and judged and condemned. The self-righteous Christian conservatives have these standards by which men are judged, and these things need to be altered. If we can eliminate these standards, which they, the religious people, have established, then we can see a greater harmonic balance within nature, and acceptance of one another will be allowed. You know, in 1930, when all this started, it was all this wonderful stuff that was going on, but then we had World War II. We had Vietnam. We had the Iranian conflict. We have all these things. The murder rate in America has jumped significantly. The, significantly. the crime rate grew over and over, multiplied times. We have this open avenue now where you can require a new mindset in your particular city, state, or county. The antiquated standards, well, they got to be rejected. However, in rejecting the old, you create a vacuum that has to be filled, a hole. The best method to fill this vacuum was found both in psychology and psychiatry. And through these methods and means, you would apply the truths of no absolutes, no God, no need for certain restrictions. The big names started popping up at this time. Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud, Victor Frankie, and a host of others, huge names in the area of medical science. Now with these scientists came new methods of controlling illicit impulses. And instead of controlling them, they literally began to unleash them. The Kinseys of the world unleashed the sexual revolution. New ways of controlling students and society as a whole was simply to slacken the leash, give a whole new freedom to the ideas. One new way of management was to form commissions who could study a matter and seek to apply the scientific reasoning using psychology, psychology and psychiatry. And this would come with a certain moral authority because the men performing and directing these particular commissions were educated men, highly schooled in some of the best schools in the nation and internationally. The new liberal goal of these men was to adjust the people in and through education and establish new paradigms in economics, religion, business, and sexual behavior. Freud produced a method of calming the individual through psychoanalysis. And he believed that people in general were driven by ego. And if he could shape and mold the ego in such a way that the individual could come to accept the world around him, all would end well. These ideas were reduced down to simple composition that elementary school students could learn. High school kids would study. You can't change the way the others act without changing the way they think. So learn to accept that and move along. You'll be able to allow others to have their freedom as well. These men would create the rules in the commissions. They would create the rules that would constrain private business and commerce. 
And they had put in place principles of economy to control greed, which was seen to be the principal motivation of business. The new liberals did not believe that any man could be so altruistic and sincere in his pursuits that they would not need to suppress the desire of greed. In this scenario, a guy named Rex Tugwell, who was an advisor to Franklin Roosevelt, said that there would no longer be private industry. What was being developed through the New Deal was a concept where government and business would work hand-in-hand in order to shape the economy. And, of course, the government would have the upper hand. The government would work with business and plan and organize different markets. They would use restrictions and laws and regulations. And they would regulate business. They literally believed that through management, teaching, and planning, they could plan both the production of and consumption of a particular product. This would require tremendous changes within the educational complex, particularly at a university level. They believed that they, the new liberals, could manage trade. They could redistribute profits in an equitable manner and thus redistribute wealth. They were after the most equitable solutions. The governing philosophy here was working to form a collective where each would get according to their need and each would give according to their ability. Does that sound familiar at all? They were trying to force a man into a mold and thus shape society and change culture and lead us us to utopia. Now, I've been studying these things quite a bit, and if you've been following my podcast, you understand that I've been doing that. And these goals, when you put them on paper and you look at them, they're all too familiar. This was not a hint of socialism. This was a hard push towards socialism. And they pushed it on an unsuspecting public, and they put them into a place that was far, far away from the freedoms that were presented in the Constitution. It was under Franklin Roosevelt that the United States lost a great deal of liberty. In society, the new liberals would be pluralist. They would work on an international level. They'd break down the people in America into groups according to their ethnicity, their religion, their socioeconomic background, and so on. They would study each group, and thus they would figure out what would motivate each group. So they were going to try to rule by breaking down certain groups. They would rule these groups in a particular way according to their needs and their cultural backgrounds. This would balance the nation in a very particular way. Now, in politics, they still held to the idea of a national sovereignty. We as a nation would be free to make our own rules and determine our own destiny. This would lead to the creation of a democracy. Actually, there would be no democracy at all. In the original ideas expressed by the founders of the United States, it was never intended that we as a people were going to be ruled as a democracy. The idea behind a democracy is that the majority rules. We were never intended to be under that sort of rule. Liberty and democracy are not complementary terms. They do not go together. Yet the new liberals believed and preached and established a democratically ruled nation. Today, you hear Tucker Carlson and all these guys that seem to be conservative agreeing with this notion that we are a democracy. We are not a democracy. We were formed as a nation to be a constitutional republic where the people had liberty and that liberty was not governed by the majority. Democracy strips liberty of its power. The role of government, initially, was to protect the rights of individuals, and the biggest threat to individual liberty has been, and is, the government itself. The Founding Fathers designed a government with constitutionally limited powers, constrained to carry out only those activities specifically allowed by the Constitution. 
Today, it's not too difficult to see that the fundamental principle underlying American government has been transformed from protecting individual liberty to carrying out the will of the people revealed by a democratic decision-making process. It's a majority rules. The powers that sit in Washington are now the exact representation of all that which George Washington led an army to defeat. Today, individual rights are subjugated to the rule of the majority. Under democracy, the will of the people decides if you can hunt with a rifle or a shotgun or if you can drive your car without wearing a seatbelt. What you're allowed to do and not to do is determined by the collective opinion of the majority. The problem is that this leads to crony politics, and it has, and it's evident. The will of the people can easily be manipulated by those in power. The leaders manage somehow to control the information, and they can easily disseminate lies and create factions. What is called the will of the people is no more than a group of like-minded people banding together to control the masses. This is the proclivity of humanity. It always has been, and it always will be. With this being the case, the concept of democracy threatens every aspect of the individual's liberty, and it places property ownership in great peril. The majority can establish eminent domain and take your property. The majority can vote taxes and take your money. The founders rejected democracy explicitly, but with the new liberals, their ideas of democracy never really came to fruition. The government was a system of management. They would manage the affairs through bureaucracy. The president would soon become nothing more than a high-minded manager, and he would have to submit to the party rules, or he would be removed. With a bureaucracy built with studied men, they would employ the scientific approach, examining polls, quantitative polls, quantitative results, data, financial trends, and such. They would be able to tell you how many men drove four trucks or wore red wing boots. This would all be done scientifically, and thus, they would know how to address the needs and aspirations of the people. They would be able to monitor the activity in a given area to determine the responses of the people to a certain stimuli. The people would be reluctant to cooperate, so rules and regulations would have to be established. Executive orders must be given, and laws would be changed. The courts would be packed with friendly, cooperative judges, and the schools would be turned to teach submission to the government as the best path. The motto would be, together, each achieves more. Team, we need to work together as a team. And under such leadership, we have lost all forms of republicanism and decency, and the idea of a constitutional republic. The president at that time was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he was quite masterful as a politician. He knew his way through the political jungle. He also knew what he wanted to do, and he placed around him men who were loyalists, committed to the New Deal, and determined. Not since the Civil War had anything so manifestly and fundamentally attacked the very foundations of the Constitution. It was Roosevelt who said, In politics, nothing happens by accident. If it happens, you can bet it was planned that way. The startling fact is that it was decided by our government to eliminate the line dividing government and business. As mentioned earlier, Rex Tugwell set out to meld the two entities, with the government establishing the guidelines by which business would operate. If business refused to cooperate, they would be out of business. Gone was trust-busting. 
Instead, you would have committees established that would relate to interstate and international commerce. What this meant was the matter of establishing rules and regulations. It was no longer left up to the free market to determine what was acceptable. It was taken in hand by the government, which was run by Franklin Roosevelt. The way this was addressed by Roosevelt was that we were moving to establish a new social contract. This would not be a democracy as one thinks of a democracy. There would not be a majority rule per se. So the concept of majority rule at that time was not considered. There would be a bureaucracy established that would manage the affairs of state. Through research and polls and data, this bureaucracy would be better informed and thus know what was best for the people. Individual concerns, desires, and liberties were to be put aside. With the data and the provided information, the state would know best how to meet your needs. This was all being done in a scientifically proven method. The former way of governing was gone. It was lost. Willingly surrendered in response to the government meeting the needs of the people. For a better understanding of this, take time, if you would, and read about the Egyptians surrendering all their personal rights, liberties, and property to the state in order to survive. They willingly became slaves. For this information, you can read Genesis 47. Now, I have often imagined that Roosevelt and his lot were lusting for power alone, and they took the position of helping people in such a way in order to gain that power. You give them certain things, and in return, they have to surrender certain liberties. Augustine mentioned such a method was employed in the last years of the Roman Empire. There were Republican elections held in the Senate in order to install new senators within the Roman state. There were several who vied for the seats, and these men would campaign for votes. They learned that they could secure the greater number of votes by promising social benefits, which would be granted if they were elected. The one who promised the most, and kept those promises, were elected, and remained in office for quite some time. The problem arose when the people, realizing the leverage they held, began to demand more and more from the government. Eventually, the money ran out and Rome was forced to tax the people into oblivion. The people became disgusted, and the idea of Rome diminished, and it wasn't long until Rome was gone, falling to the viscos. The Roman leaders fled into the hills, and those who could afford it, they ran away. But those who remained were the poor, the indigent, and the elderly. If we studied the history of the times, particularly during the 1920s and 30s, people were seriously suffering emotionally, physically, financially, and ultimately spiritually. The fate of the nation lay in the balance. It would be a fair assessment to lean in favor of the benevolence of the government at this time. However, we can't ignore the long-term effects that would have on America and its form of government. Such political moves stripped America of the idea of a constitutional republic and it instituted the administrative state one that had created a dependence within the people. I did not say trust, but a dependence. And people tend to depend on anyone who will buy them food and provide them shelter and offer the idea of safety. And thus we have the rise of the big brother status government. If intentions were good, we can't tell. While the motives appeared to be for relief, the political intent was and is for power. In order to gain power, Certain rights have to be surrendered willingly by the people or by force. The North had gained the right to rule due to the surrender of the Southern armies. 
This required multiple millions of dollars and the lives of and the ruination of millions of men. It was through the force of arms that this shift was gained. America could not survive another internal struggle such as that. If power was to be gained in the United States during the 20s and 30s, it had to be bought. The public had to see the benefits of surrender. And when the surrender was made, the power was granted and assumed by the government. Thus, it would be considered a right established by the government based on adverse possession. The people allowed the government the power, and the government gladly accepted it, and power was given. This power never has been relinquished, and it's been set in place and will not move. This required a crisis of such a magnitude that little resistance could be offered. Now we enter into what we knew as the Great Recession, which led to the Great Depression. At Vintage Broadcasting, we appreciate your participation with us in listening to our podcast. We extend our thanks and gratitude to you and hope that these episodes are proving to be beneficial in helping you understand how we have arrived to where we find ourselves today as a nation. My name is Frank Koss, and I want to personally invite you to join us again as we continue our series entitled, How to Eat an Elephant, Losing Our Constitutional Republic, One Piece at a Time.